Misappropriation. Noun. The act of appropriating wrongly, as by theft or embezzlement. From the Latin prefix mis, meaning bad or wrong, and the Latin word appropriare, meaning to make one's own. Hello, and welcome back to Misappropriation, the podcast for people who, like me, love heist stories. I took a break from podcasting for a while because my semester got busy, but I'm back and I'm excited to keep sharing heists. The tale I have for you today has everything. Car chases, meth, theatrical disguises, a shootout, a magnificent three-story treehouse, everything. This is the story of Scott Skurlock, the Hollywood bandit, and his associates. Let me set the scene. Seattle, 1996. The time of grunge and nirvana. Lots of flannel, drug use, a growing tech sector, increasing income inequality, and rising housing prices. Much like today, actually. But on Thanksgiving Day in 1996, the FBI and the Seattle police are surrounding a red and white camper parked in the backyard of an elderly woman named Wilma Walker. Seattle Police Sergeant Howard Mont positions himself between the door and the window of the camper, out of the line of fire of anyone shooting out the door, and knocks on it. Seattle Police, he yells. There's no response from the man they think is inside. Hey, Scarlock, if you're in there, you better come out, another officer, Mike Cruzan, calls. There's still no response, just the sounds of circling police and news helicopters. Sergeant Mott manages to jimmy open a window on the camper. Come out or it's going to get uncomfortable, he yells, still not seeing anyone inside. He reaches up to the window and empties a can of pepper spray into the camper, listening intently for the sounds of coughing or movement, but there's no response. He empties a second can of pepper spray through the window. There's still no response, but suddenly a gunshot comes from inside the camper. Mott runs for cover behind a tree and radios for more backup as police return fire. The quiet Thanksgiving afternoon that the Walker family had expected turned into a standoff with Seattle law enforcement and a man they had nicknamed Hollywood for the elaborate disguises he wore to steal over a million dollars in 17 bank robberies. Scott Scarlock, the man who had become known as the Hollywood Bandit, actually grew up near where I did in Northern Virginia. Unlike me, he got his start in crime early. He and his friend, Kevin Myers, used to wait for a pie delivery truck to stop to make a delivery and then steal a pie off the back. Then they'd boost a bottle of milk from a milk truck in the same way and have the pie and milk for breakfast before skipping school together. In 1974, after high school, they both ended up living in Hawaii and working for a landscaping company and later a tomato farm together. They worked just enough to pay the bills and spent the rest of their time outside exploring all that Hawaii had to offer. Once, on one of their hiking expeditions, they stumbled on an illicit cannabis growing operation. The two friends took a few of the plants back to the tomato farm with them and disguised them in the landscaping around the house that they lived in, a cabin they referred to as the Shire. The Shire was located on one end of the tomato farm, far enough away that the owner didn't directly supervise them, but close enough that they could walk into the tomato fields easily. 
Scott and Kevin and a rotating cast of their friends and girlfriends were in and out of the house constantly, making art, smoking weed, playing music, and dreaming about all that the future could hold for them. Unfortunately, the idyllic time at the Shire came to an end when the owner of the tomato farm discovered the cannabis plants hidden on the farm. He kicked Scott and Kevin out, and they went their separate ways. Scott, in his mid-twenties, decided to go to college with the intent of going to medical school and becoming a doctor. In 1978, he enrolled in Evergreen State College in Washington State and began taking courses in general and organic chemistry and then biochemistry. He managed to find a way into a lab in the basement of a building on campus and decided to try his hand at synthesizing methamphetamines, a process he'd read about in his studies of chemistry. He stole the supplies from various labs on campus and used the basement lab to manufacture the meth, which he then sold wholesale to dealers. Sidebar. Evergreen is considered an alternative school and has a loosely structured academic system that focuses on individual learning. I went to a similar school for my undergrad experience, and legend has it that the science building only started to be locked at night after someone was caught synthesizing LSD in the organic chemistry labs after hours. I have no idea how true it is, but I can 100% picture it happening. Is making drugs in science labs a common weird liberal arts school phenomena? If this happened at your school, please let me know. Anyway, back to the story. Scott was making so much money synthesizing and selling meth that he dropped out of college. He ended up renting and then later buying a property outside of Olympia, Washington. It was a 20-acre chunk of woods with a small house and a barn on it. Much like in Hawaii, Scott's land became a place where friends and girlfriends would come and spend time. Scott was generous and warm, but detached. He was always willing to help a friend, but he would call in favors later when it suited him. When a friend of his from college, Mark Biggins, was struggling to support his family, Scott hired him to do work around the property. Mark helped remodel the small house and build a secret room underneath the barn. Scott also hired his old friend Kevin's older brother, Steve Myers, a gifted sculptor hurting for money after losing everything in a fire and divorcing from his wife, to help around the property. Mark, Steve, and Scott also all worked on building an elaborate treehouse. Scott continued to make meth in the secret room under his barn, and his friends didn't ask questions about where the money was coming from. His family thought he worked in logging and construction. He was known for going into town, ordering expensive champagne, and tipping heavily. After a night out, he would go back to his treehouse and fall asleep in a king-sized bed 70 feet up in the tree canopy. The treehouse was three stories tall, had running water, a hot tub, a wood stove for heat, a full kitchen, and an elaborate system of zip lines and platforms to swing through the woods. It was built around seven big old cedar trees, so Scott and his friends started calling the place Seven Cedars. Scott would bury plastic five-gallon buckets of meth and cash in stashes all over his property, a trick he learned from an associate of his named Captain Pat. Captain Pat was something of a go-between for Scott Scurlock and the other people who were involved in the drug trade. Scott would give him meth, and he would bring Scott cash. Or, sometimes, Scott would give him cash, and he'd bring Scott ingredients for meth. This system worked well until 1989, when Captain Pat was murdered. His death scared Scott, who swore off making meth altogether. He still had his stashes buried around his property, but he disassembled his equipment and refused to make any more. He thought he had enough money to last him for a while. 
The problem was that Scott had expensive tastes. He loved to travel, he was impulsive, and he had girlfriends on three continents. He spent money recklessly, but not flashily. He drove an older truck, wore his clothes until they fell apart, and was known to sometimes steal materials to build his treehouse rather than paying for them. At the same time, he would buy expensive champagne and caviar, he once dropped $12,000 on a necklace for the woman he was seeing at the time, and he was paying a crew of friends to help build, maintain, and manage the Seven Cedars property. This brings us to 1992. Scott, according to his friends who were around at the time, seemed moody and erratic. He'd run out of money, he seemed depressed, and he'd been taking bigger and bigger risks with his life. What's an underemployed college dropout supposed to do when he has a pricey lifestyle and no job prospects other than amateur pharmacology? Rob a bank, of course. Scott began watching heist movies and reading books about famous bank robbers. When he mentioned his idea to Mark Biggins, Mark laughed, thinking it was a joke. But no, Scott was serious. Mark was facing mounting financial pressure to support his family, so he agreed reluctantly. Scott outlined the plan. Mark and Scott would enter the bank armed and wearing masks. Scott would get the money from the tellers while Mark controlled the crowd of customers and employees. Tracy, Mark's partner, would be the lookout and getaway driver. All of them agreed to wear gloves. Mark was to steal a set of car keys from a customer in the bank so they could use that car as a getaway vehicle. They would take the car, make their escape, ditch the car, and then meet up with Tracy, who would be driving Scott's van. The bank Scott selected was a branch of the Sea First Bank in the Madison Park area of Seattle. Tracy dropped off Scott and Mark near the bank a little before noon on Thursday, June 25, 1992. Scott wore a false nose and some makeup. Mark wore a Ronald Reagan mask. The two men entered the bank. Scott jumped up onto the teller's counter. This is a holdup! Don't anybody move! he yelled and then jumped down onto the other side of the desk and began emptying the cash drawers into a bag. Mark waved his gun around and instructed everyone to lay down on the floor. Mark went to take a bag of cash from Scott and realized he'd forgotten to wear his gloves or get keys from a customer. Scott went up to a man that they'd seen arrive in a blue Cadillac. May I have your keys, sir? Don't worry, I won't hurt your car. The man handed over the keys and the two robbers went to leave. As they left, Scott called to the crowd, as long as nobody sets off the alarm, we won't have to come back and shoot anybody. And then, as the door was closing behind him, he grinned and added, Thank you! Have a nice day! Scott and Mark went out to the blue Cadillac, and Mark tried to start it, but his hands were shaking and he was terrified. He ground the motor several times before the car started, and when they arrived at the designated meeting spot to meet up with Tracy, she and the van were nowhere to be seen. Mark was freaking out. He was convinced that this was a terrible idea and that they were definitely going to get caught. Scott told Mark to leave the car, and they took off on foot with the cash, running down an alley. A huge dog in an adjacent yard lunged at them and started barking. Scott started laughing. The two men vaulted a fence onto a golf course and headed towards their backup meeting place. The golfers, surprised by two men in masks, carrying cash and sprinting through their game, were speechless. Somehow, no one gave pursuit, and Mark and Scott arrived at their backup meeting place to find Tracy there with the van. They were on the highway and on their way back to the treehouse when Mark couldn't hold it together anymore. He started crying. I am never going to do this again, he told his friend. Scott turned to Tracy. You're going to be my number one man to rob banks with, he told her. Then he turned to Mark. You lost it in there. You were shaking. You are one lousy bank robber.
the total take for the crew was $19,971. As soon as they got back to Seven Seaters, Mark packed all of his and Tracy's stuff into their car and insisted that they leave, telling her, We're moving. We're never going to do anything like that again. They left for Montana, Mark insisting that he was never going to participate in anything like that ever again. Mark lived in terror of being caught, but the only evidence recovered from the scene were four latent fingerprints and five shoe prints that were eventually identified as being made by Converse All-Stars. Scott, however, was determined to go bigger and do better. He went over the robbery in his head over and over again, deciding what worked and what didn't work. He analyzed every very variable he could think of, from the disguises to the getaway car. On Friday, August 20th, 1992, shortly before closing, Scott entered the same Madison Park branch of the Sea First Bank that he'd robbed just two months earlier in June. This time, he was alone, and he looked older, with graying hair and a gray mustache. Again, he demanded money, and this time insisted, no die packs. He left the bank with $8,124.50. On September 3, 1992, only three weeks later, Scott robbed a West Seattle branch of U.S. Bank. He wore a dare baseball cap, blonde wig, and sunglasses over heavy makeup. He demanded that the tellers place the cash on the counter of the bank and then swept the stacks of money into a bag and left. What he didn't know was that one of the tellers had managed to activate the bank's silent alarm and security cameras and that another had given him a stack of bait money, bills with known serial numbers that can be traced back to the bank if they turn up in the possession of a potential robber. This time, Scott got away with $9,613. September 11th and October 5th, 1992, saw Scott rob two more banks for a total of five robberies and a net gain of $78,870.50. Each robbery was smoother and more practiced than the one before. He was gaining a better understanding of bank operations, too, and now insisted that the tellers leave out die packs, and he gathered all the staff and the customers in one area where he could control them and prevent them from calling for help. By now, Scott had caught the attention of the Seattle Police Robbery Unit and the FBI, who were working on building a profile of him. But beyond white male, 30s, 5'11", and 165 pounds, they were stumped. The only consistencies were the black Glock handgun he used to threaten people, the fact that he wore Converse All-Stars, and he disguised his face. Scott had no idea what his sixth robbery would bring him. At 11.40 a.m., a week before Thanksgiving in 1992, Scott walked into the Sea First Bank branch in Hawthorne Hills. He announced the robbery and had the bank customers and staff move into the center of the bank, and then he asked for the vault teller. No one answered, so he racked the slide on his gun to chamber a bullet. Who's the vault teller? he asked again. This time a teller stepped forward. Her name was Patty, and she was young and scared. Her hands were shaking so much that she had trouble opening the safe. Calm down, Scott told her. I'm not going to hurt you. I'm sorry, she responded. I'm just scared to death. She finally got the safe open, and Scott began stuffing money into the duffel bag he'd brought with him. There was more cash than fit in the bag, so he asked the vault teller, Patty, to go get him a second bag to put the rest in. She gave him a canvas bank bag, which he also filled. As he left, he turned to give the bank and the hostages one last warning. Don't trip any alarms for 30 seconds or I'll come back in. He walked out with $252,000. 
Scott spent Thanksgiving with Mark and Tracy, who were living in a rundown cabin in Montana. Seeing the state of the house, Scott handed Mark $5,000. As the day went by, Scott told his friends about the five robberies he'd pulled without him, and while Tracy was impressed, Mark was worried. Mark and Tracy packed up and moved again, this time to California, to be closer to Mark's daughter, Lori, who lived there with her mom. With Mark no longer living at Seven Cedars, Scott turned to Steve, his old friend Kevin's older brother, to help him launder some of the bank robbery proceeds. He'd give Steve packets of cash and fly him down to Reno or Las Vegas and have him launder the money through casinos. I'm not entirely sure how that works, but somehow he'd fly home with packages of money consisting of entirely different bills that couldn't be traced back to the banks they had come from. Meanwhile, the Seattle area was a prime spot for bank robbers. The Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force was attempting to curtail the number of bank robberies occurring, but with limited success. In 1990, two years before Scott Skerlock started his spray, 255 bank robberies occurred in Seattle. About 75% of bank robbers were apprehended at the time. The percentage is probably higher now because of advances in forensics, surveillance, and facial recognition technology. The huge take from the Thanksgiving heist in 1992 held Scott over for a while, but eventually he ran out of money. In the meantime, he'd been going over his strategy in his head over and over again and decided that there were a few things he should do differently. He ordered movie-grade prosthetics and makeup to be delivered to a friend's house and had acquired a police scanner and some portable radios. The plan was to disguise himself, rob the bank, remove his fake nose, chin, and cheeks, and then vanish with the money in a different car driven by Steve. Steve would sit with the police scanner and a radio, and if a silent alarm went off or law enforcement was dispatched to the bank, he would hear about it and radio Scott and tell him to get out. On November 24th, 1993, almost a year after his last robbery, Scott struck the same branch of Sea First Bank in Hawthorne Hills again. He walked in, announced, this is a robbery, and asked for the vault teller. The bank manager tried to lie and say the vault teller was on vacation, and he didn't have the keys to the vault or the cash drawers. But as he was telling the story, two employees, unaware of the robbery taking place, walked out of the vault carrying cash for another purpose. With the door open, Scott walked the two staff members and the manager back into the vault and started shoving money into a bag. Again, he threatened everyone in the bank, telling them not to move or make any calls for a full minute, and then left with his haul. It added up to $98,571. Scott gave Steve $5,000 as his cut, and then $15,000 to launder for him in Las Vegas. The rest he buried in caches at Seven Cedars. Steve, still thinking that bank robberies were a bad idea, moved to California to try and leave Scott and his life of crime behind. But when the money ran out and Scott called again... Steve went back up to Washington to help his friend. On January 21st, 1994, Steve helped Scott rob a branch of U.S. Bank in the same neighborhood as their last robbery. This time, Scott was frustrated because the vault teller was absent from work that day, and so he hadn't been able to get the big money. Another staff member tripped a silent alarm and told him about it, which was the only reason he escaped the bank before the police arrived. Scott got away with $15,803, of which he gave Steve $5,000. The close call scared Steve again, but at this point, he was also scared of Scott, and he'd do whatever Scott asked of him. 
In the year between the first and second Thanksgiving robberies, the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force had tried to learn more about the robber they were calling Hollywood because of his theatrical disguises. They had several sketches of him based on witness descriptions, but because of the false nose, chin, and sometimes cheekbones, the wigs, and the makeup he wore, none of them were actually accurate. He consistently wore Converse All-Stars and carried a black Glock handgun. He moved like an athlete and seemed attracted to danger. They developed a formula to predict when his next robbery would be based on the take of his previous robbery. He seemed to blow through about $20,000 a month, so when he got a smaller take in the January 21st robbery, they started preparing for another heist to happen soon. They knew he preferred to rob banks around noon or before closing, frequently on rainy days towards the end of the week. February 17th, 1994 was a Thursday, and it was snowing, which was unusual weather for Seattle. Scott walked into the Hawthorne Hills branch of Sea First Bank for the third time at around 9.40 a.m. The time of day broke his pattern, but everything else in the profile held. One of the tellers, Patty, the same one from the first robbery, recognized him. As he cleaned out the vault again, he noticed her watching him. Don't look at me. Keep your eyes on the ground, he directed. Patty, less intimidated the second time she encountered him, asked, You really like it here, don't you? Scott responded, Yeah, but I don't think I'm coming back here anymore. Patty hoped that was true, as she watched him walk out with $114,000. With this third robbery of this bank, Scott had taken almost $475,000 from the Hawthorne Hills branch of Sea First Bank alone. On June 24, 1994, Scott and Steve attempted to rob a bank in Portland, Oregon, but a customer called 911 on a cell phone. Scott had escaped because Steve heard the call on the police scanner and warned him over the radio, but he left frustrated and without any money. Scott would need to try again, which he did on July 13th at the Queen Anne Interstate Bank in Seattle. This time, though, two witnesses had seen his vehicle, a blue Ford Aerostar van. Fortunately for the robbers, they'd gotten enough money that they wouldn't need to commit another robbery for several months. Scott knew his van had been seen, so he decided it could be used in a robbery only one more time, but not in Seattle. He decided to take on a bank in Portland, Oregon, and this time he was determined not to leave empty-handed. Scott walked into the Woodstock branch of U.S. Bank in Portland on December 20, 1994. He got $22,000, which was disappointing for him and he was seen with the van again, so he abandoned it, and Steve drove them both back to Seven Cedars in an untraceable getaway car. They got dinner and started planning the next heist. On Wednesday, January 18, 1995, Scott and Steve planned to rob the first interstate bank in the Wallingford area of Seattle. The North Precinct of the Seattle Police Department was located there, which added another layer of complexity to the robbery. Scott walked in wearing his theatrical makeup and prosthetics and carrying his gun. He demanded money from the teller at the front of the bank and directed another teller to get off the phone she was using. As he took the money from the cash drawers, he grabbed a die pack. The teller, who had been on the phone, had set it on the counter instead of t hanging it up, and when Scott's back was turned, she picked it up and told the person on the other end to call 911 because the bank was being robbed. Scott was in the process of getting the vault teller to open the vault when Steve radioed him to get out. Scott took off on foot, running towards his vehicle. A witness described seeing a white man in a tan coat and a brown hat run to an old yellow station wagon, throw a bag on the ground, 
and then drive away as it exploded in a cloud of orange dye. Somehow, despite the witnesses in the dye pack, Scott was able to dump the car and get into a getaway vehicle and make his escape back to Seven Cedars to meet up with Steve, but he hadn't gotten away with any money. After the failure of the Wallingford robbery, Scott was out of money, frustrated, and itching for another heist. Nine days later, on January 27, 1995, Scott and Steve hit the Madison Park branch of Sea First Bank for a third time. After the last two robberies, security had been increased at the bank, and the tellers were now seated behind a pane of bulletproof glass. But Scott got behind the counter anyway, somehow, and started scooping the money from the cash drawers into his bag. He demanded that the vault teller open the vault and stuff the cash there into his bag, too. Wait 20 seconds before you activate the alarm. If you do it early, I'll know, he told the staff, and walked out the back door. This time, instead of running to a car and getting out of town as fast as possible, Scott stashed the cash in his car and removed his prosthetics and makeup. Then, Steve and Scott got dinner at a cafe down the street and watched the police response to the robbery. This time, they got away with $252,466. Scott went over his robberies in his head again and again and again, and he decided he wanted to rob bigger banks and that he needed a third man for crowd control. His first choice was his friend Mark Biggins. Despite his fear during the first bank robbery in June of 1992, Scott thought he could train Mark into being a better accomplice. Mark, feeling like he owed Scott, reluctantly agreed to help. On Thursday, January 25th, 1996, almost exactly a year later, Scott, Mark, and Steve chose the first interstate bank in the Wedgwood area of Seattle to rob. They had no way of knowing that Sean Johnson, an FBI agent on the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force, was sitting on a stakeout at another bank just two miles away. He'd guessed the Hollywood crew would hit sometime during that week based on the formula that the team had worked out for predicting the timing of the next robbery based on the amount previously stolen. He'd just picked the wrong bank to watch. Scott and Mark, in theatrical makeup and prosthetics, entered the bank and walked up to the counter. Ma'am, this is a robbery. I want your fifties and hundreds, Scott demanded. Then Mark herded customers and staff into the center of the lobby of the bank, while Scott took the vault teller back to open the vault. She was scared and had some trouble opening the vault with shaky hands. Don't fuck with me, lady, Scott threatened her. Finally, she got the door open, and Scott had her face the wall while he stuffed cash into his bag, careful this time not to get any dye packs. As Mark and Scott left the bank, Scott turned back and said, Thank you, ladies. See you later. The team got away with $141,405. Agent Sean Johnson heard the call about the robbery come over his radio, and he was incredibly frustrated. Scott, however, seemed to come alive every time he robbed a bank. The Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force had a theory that the man they were calling Hollywood might be a cop. They based the theory on the way he held his gun with his index finger along the barrel rather than inside the trigger guard, the fact that robberies frequently happened around shift change hours for the police in places where police were likely to be busy, and the way that all of his getaway cars were wiped down when they were recovered, so there was no recoverable evidence inside. The profile they had suggested he was a white male, about 40 years old, in good physical shape, and that he likely did surveillance on the banks before robbing them. They theorized that the reason they were never able to catch him was that he might just put on a police jacket and blend into the crowd of responding officers. This made the investigation into the Hollywood bandit feel much more high stakes than it had been before. It also meant 
that the team investigating the Hollywood robberies would have to keep a tight lid on all of the information relating to the investigation. On May 22, 1996, Scott and Steve, without Mark this time, robbed another bank using the same plan that had worked for them so many times already. They got away with $114,978. There was a major fire happening that day that drew police and first responder resources away from the bank, and Scott, after removing his makeup, drove back around and passed the bank slowly, watching the chaos unfold. He didn't know it, but after 14 bank robberies in four years, he was the Seattle area's most wanted bank robber. The public pressure to catch him was increasing. Scott's unrecognizable disguised face was all over local news and flyers being distributed by the police. There was a $50,000 reward offered for information leading to his arrest. A memo sent out to members of the Seattle Police Department around this time read, in part, During the past four years, 16 banks, 14 in Seattle, 2 in Portland, have been robbed by an individual or group of individuals. Officers should be aware that Hollywood may wear any number of different disguises. In the past, he has worn loose-fitting clothing, which usually includes a brimmed hat, sunglasses, a sport or Gore-Tex coat, dress pants, and gloves. He's armed with a semi-automatic handgun, which he displays early in the robbery. This weapon is carried in a shoulder holster. Hollywood also has an earpiece in his ear, which is believed to be connected to a two-way radio. He or his accomplice may have access to a police scanner. The mask the robber uses appears to be made of plastic or a putty. The makeup is designed to create an extended chin and nose. The mask has a mustache. The suspect is a white male, 35 to 40 years old, 5 foot 10, and 160 to 179 pounds. He appears to have some knowledge of bank security procedures such as alarms and dye packs. Once inside a bank, he commands all occupants into an area where he can control them. He removes money from the teller drawers and the vault, spending considerable time inside the bank. Hollywood appears very athletic in his movements and his vaulted counters. Upon leaving the bank, it appears he may walk a block or more before entering his getaway vehicle. Officers should use caution, as Hollywood may have one or more accomplices acting as lookouts. There is little information as to what kind of threat they may pose. The memo went on to give specific instructions to anyone responding to a Hollywood call. Upon notification of any bank robbery or robbery in progress, units will respond and work with marked patrol units to increase the probability of suspect apprehension. All members of the Hollywood detail will have police identification with them, which will be visible during a response. Suspects may possess large caliber weapons, including shotguns, hunting rifles, and military-style rifles. These afford the suspect greater fields of fire and superior penetration to a handgun. A rifle round will easily penetrate a patrol car door. Remember to stay behind cover whenever possible when confronting a possible suspect. The Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force was hoping that if Hollywood was impersonating a police officer to blend in, they could catch him without a badge or proper uniform or equipment. They were also aware of the potential for violence and wanted to reduce the chances of someone mistaking a fellow member of law enforcement for the robber. There was a massive stakeout operation happening during the summer of 1996, covering banks in three zones of the city considered the most likely places for Hollywood to strike. The banks were watched all day for months. But the stakeouts didn't pay off quite the way the task force was hoping. There were no more robberies committed by Scott and his crew that summer. But the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force did capture three other different bank robbery crews. This brings us to November 27th, 1996, the day before Thanksgiving. At 5.40 p.m., most of the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force had gone home for the evening. 
At 5.41 p.m., a call came in about a bank robbery at the Sea First Bank in Lake City. An employee working there had spotted the team before they even went into the bank. The call went out before Steve turned on his scanner to monitor the police frequency. When Scott and Mark walked into the bank, they had no way of knowing that the police were already on their way. Scott walked up to the teller, a man also named Scott, and told him not to touch any buttons or set off any alarms, not knowing that someone already had. Scott Skurlock took the money from the cash drawers and, as usual for him, asked for the vault teller to open the vault. He stuffed his blue duffel bag full of cash, and then the two men walked out. A man who'd been standing in line at the bank, Steve Woods, watched them go and tailed them on foot. He watched them walk through a parking lot, past a park, up a hill, and then get into a blue Subaru and drive away. Three members of the Puget Sound Violent Crimes Task Force, Mike McGann, Pete Erickson, and Ellen Glasser, responded to the call immediately, and they had their dispatcher call Sean Johnson, the FBI agent from earlier, at home to respond to. Two members of the Seattle Police Department's SWAT team also heard the call and were on their way. It was the day before Thanksgiving and raining heavily, so traffic was thick and congested, but they did their best to get there quickly. Mike McGann was glad he'd practiced pursuit driving as he gunned it up the shoulder of the highway. He realized that his Kevlar vest was in the trunk of his car, and they'd probably never needed it more than he was about to. When he arrived on scene, he was disappointed to learn that Hollywood had driven off. This was the closest they'd ever come to catching him. The traffic was still heavy, though, and Mike had a hunch. He suspected the crew would be heading towards the highway, so he took a shortcut. He spotted a white Astro van, similar to one of the vehicles Hollywood was known to have driven. Mike followed it, observing closely. The windows were fogged up, and someone had a flashlight bouncing around in the back seat. Was it a bank robber, counting money, or looking for trackers? Mike had long thought that the crew used a secondary escape vehicle, and that it was likely a van. He radioed in that he was going to make a stop, and then went to pull the van over. But, instead of pulling over, the van took a turn into a residential neighborhood. When Mike had radioed in that he was going to try and stop the van, he'd asked for backup, so at this point he had eight marked Seattle police cars behind him. They were in a full-on car chase. It was brief, and the van came to a stop by a curb. Through the rain-streaked windows of his car, Mike saw someone get out of the passenger door with a large rifle. The man aimed at Mike and went to fire, but somehow the first shot jammed. Mike took cover behind his car, shouting warnings to his backup. Pete and Ellen drew their weapons. As the man went to shoot again, Mike McGann opened fire. Six or seven shots went into the left rear door of the van. The driver got back in the van and took off for a few more blocks before stopping in the middle of an intersection. Gunshots came from inside the van, smashing the windshield of one of the police cruisers. And officers returned fire. The van took off again, slower this time. Mike went to cut it off. It left the road and rolled to a stop when it struck a house, the front end coming to rest against a brick chimney and a rhododendron bush. Before it even came to a complete stop, a man jumped out and took off on foot. Two other men were pulled out of the van, both wounded. A call went out for ambulances and every available canine unit. The police established a 10-block perimeter and started searching for the elusive third man. Inside the van, police found a duffel bag containing $1,080,000 in cash, lots of guns, two bottles of mineral spirits, and the remains of a fake nose with a mustache attached and a fake chin. There were also three portable Motorola radios, a police scanner, and a clear plastic bag full of ammunition. Mike went to one of the injured men and asked, Are you Hollywood? 
And the man responded, No, I'm Steve. The manhunt was on. The next morning, Thanksgiving Day 1996, Wilma Walker was getting ready for her sons to come over for Thanksgiving dinner. But with her neighborhood locked down for the manhunt, she was a little spooked and reluctant to go into her basement, garage, or backyard. She called her son, Robert, and said, If you boys want Thanksgiving dinner, you better come over here and check things out for me. I'm not going downstairs until you check it out and make sure everything's safe. That bank robber could be right here in the house with me, for all I know. Robert promised his mom he'd be there early, and he and his girlfriend arrived at her home a little before 10 a.m. Him, his girlfriend, and another friend of theirs checked his mom's house, including her basement, garage, under her deck, and in her yard. There was a camper in the backyard belonging to Robert's brother, Ron, and it looked untouched. The door was locked. Reassured, Wilma started cooking a turkey and making pies. At 2 p.m., Ron arrived. They chatted about the possibility that someone could be in his camper. Ron asked if Robert had actually looked inside, and Robert said no, but the door was locked. Ron pointed out that there were other ways into the camper, like the windows or the access doors on the sides. The brothers went out to take another look. Robert tried to open an access door, but it was jammed from the inside. He started to hit it with a 2 by 4 when his brother got his attention. Ron had taken a ladder over to the windows to look inside the camper, and he saw someone inside. The brothers went back to the house. Robert watched the camper while Ron called 911. At 2.36 p.m., two police units were dispatched to a report of a possible prowler in a backyard. Sergeant Howard Mont, from the opening of this story, went to... The officers didn't think they'd find Hollywood in the camper. People in the neighborhood were spooked from all the police activity the night before and extremely cautious, but it seemed unlikely that he could still be in the neighborhood after all of the searching that happened overnight. Howard Mont knocked on the door of the camper. Seattle police, he yelled. There was no response. Ron Walker showed him the hatch on the side of the camper that was blocked from the inside and shouldn't have been. Mont still didn't think there was anybody inside, but he wasn't taking any chances. Come out or it's going to get uncomfortable, he called, and then when there was no response, he emptied a container of pepper spray through the window. He listened for coughing or wheezing or any other sounds of life from inside the camper, but heard nothing. To be absolutely sure it was unoccupied, he emptied a second can of pepper spray through the window. There was still no response. He reached through the window to try and open the door that was locked from the inside, but before he could, there was one loud gunshot. He, drove, he dove for cover as more shots were fired. At 2.53 p.m., a negotiator named Jennifer McLean arrived on scene. She attempted to start a conversation with the man inside the camper, but she got no response. The FBI brought in Scott's girlfriend to try and talk to him and get him to come out, but she also got no response. If he was in there, he wasn't talking, and he wasn't coming out. Finally, after hours of standoff with no response from the man inside the camper, at 6 o'clock, a member of the SWAT team fired a tear gas canister into the camper. It punched through the aluminum shell, entered the inside, and then punched right out the other side. The inside of the camper would have been full of debilitating tear gas, and anyone capable and in their right mind would have left at that point. But nothing happened. Twenty minutes later, the SWAT team launched a second tear gas canister. The authorities concluded that if there was anyone inside, they had to be either unconscious or dead. The leader of the SWAT team walked slowly up to the camper and opened the door. Everyone waited outside to hear what he would find. At first he didn't see anything, 
But then he looked under the tiny camper table. We have a body, he radioed the others. There was a long pause. It appears to be a white male in his late thirties. Scott Scurlock had wrapped himself in tablecloths and a bedspread and curled under the table. When the investigation was over, it was determined that Scott Scurlock had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound that entered under his chin and exited the back of his head. Steve Myers had sustained severe and painful injuries to both of his arms, and Mark Biggins almost died from internal bleeding. They both survived their injuries, but the recovery was long and difficult. Eventually, when they were released from the hospital, they were both charged with one count of conspiracy to commit armed bank robbery, one count of armed bank robbery, two counts of assault on a federal officer, and one count of use of a firearm. They both took a plea deal and were sentenced to 21 years in federal prison. I believe they were both released in 2015. So there you have it. That's the story of Scott Skurlock, the Hollywood bandit, and his accomplices. By all accounts, Scott was a magnetic person and inspired a lot of loyalty from his people. But years of drug use and deteriorating mental health took their toll, and he got more and more erratic and reckless. To some extent, it seems like he preyed on Mark and Steve, using their financial strain to manipulate them into working with him on his schemes, first to build the treehouse and renovate his properties, and then to help him rob banks. They definitely made their decisions, and they could have said no, like Steve's brother Kevin did, but I don't think they can be entirely solely blamed for their involvement. I'm going to try and have a more consistent posting schedule this year, so thank you for sticking with me. Subscribe to Misappropriation to hear more heist stories. I promise I've got some good ones lined up.